Good morning, South City family. I am excited to be here with you this morning. First, because I'm here with family. I'm thankful. I have also special family here this morning. I know I saw my uh, sweet granddaughter, Jordan, this morning. Glad that she's here. Um, you're my family. And Jordan is also my sister in Christ, as well as my granddaughter. So I'm thankful that we are brothers and sisters in Jesus. Secondly, uh, I'm excited because we have this amazing opportunity to see Jesus, yes, through our inner eyes, um, to see him revealed in all his glory. And this is, this is a very favorite passage of mine. Uh, I don't feel worthy to, to preach it. I know that I'm, I'm not. Um, and so I ask for your prayers. I ask you to, to lift me up as I bring this message because I know God has great things here for us. And pray also that, that each one of us will open our hearts to hear and to really, to really see what he wants us to see, hear what he wants us to hear. The passage before us in Mark 9, as Leslie gave a great introduction and already introduced this idea, that is that the time Jesus took three of his followers, also close friends, on a hike up a high mountain to see, well, first to pray, and secondly, to see a glimpse of his glory. And so this this moment, this adventure moment, comes just exactly at the right place, of course, in this concise history of the life and times of Jesus that has been the Gospel of Mark that Drew has been leading us through. Um, it, is a, it is a concise history. And, and this particular version of the, the, the trek up the mountain and the things that happened is, is very, very highlighted. So we're going to borrow a little bit from Luke, the parallel passage in Luke this morning, to, to get a fuller picture of what happens. Now, Lou, uh, Drew had just taken us through uh, the passage, the previous passage in Mark 8. We concluded that last week. And in that passage... Drew helped us to discover uh, Jesus' call to radical discipleship and how Jesus began to reveal to his followers his, his sufferings and the passion that is awaiting him. Jesus had just shared how he would be mocked and how he would be killed. And you remember how Peter objected and rebuked him and how Jesus told him, get Get behind me, Satan. Uh, and, and he called on his disciples, actually that's you and, and me, to be ready for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus, to give up our lives so that we might save our lives. And his reasoning was stunningly simple and yet hard as granite. He said in just the previous chapter, he said, For what does it profit a man 
to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? And having said that there's no gain without sacrifice, that there's a great price to pay, and that this is very, very costly, the question might rise, well, then what, after all, is the gain? What is there to gain? What is that promise, that promised gain? And I think that's why we have this little first word here in the first chapter, in the, in the chapter, next chapter, 9, chapter 9 of Mark, this little first word, and, in the English and in the Greek, the word is chi. And this tiny word connects all that we had just seen in that call to radical discipleship, how we are called to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's tying all of that with something glorious, something amazing, something wonderful, something beautiful that maybe our eyes have never seen. And it's the glory that Jesus is about to reveal of himself. And it is being presented in this context of suffering, in this context of why we need to go through this dark tunnel to reach the light ahead. It is totally worth following Jesus into who knows what adventures await. Adventures like maybe going on a hike with the master up a, up a mountain on a, on a beautiful spring day. So in verse 1, we read, and, and, tying everything together, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now surely this got their attention. Wait a minute. So it's not all gloom and doom. It's not all loss and, and, and sacrifice. There's something beautiful ahead, something filled with glory. There's a kingdom awaiting, a kingdom with power where there will be great joy. And the words to me, for me, in this moment come to mind of the Lord's Prayer that we pray almost like checking the box, yet the words are so powerful as we end the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And actually, amen is the next word. Because when Jesus says truly, in the Greek, the word is amen. Amen. That's like, listen up. This is Jesus speaking with absolute assurance, absolute authority. And this is not subject to change or doubt. As we just, Daryl led us in song this morning. His promise is yes and amen. Nothing he says. Everything he has said, everything he will say will be fully, will be fulfilled. So he said it, and that settles it. There is a pearl of great price worth more than the whole world. 
And in the light of setting aside that which is old and walking in what is new, which is our call to discipleship, it is worth this pearl of great price, whose name is Jesus, is worth more than everything you and I could possibly gain through our unredeemed nature. More than the world. Have you had a glimpse of him? Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? If not, neither the good news of the gospel nor his call to be a disciple can make any sense at all. I hope that the Lord will open your eyes if you haven't seen him. If you haven't heard from him, it'll be his grace operating right now, opening your heart to see the truth, to see the opportunity here before you. What did Jesus mean when he said, you will see the kingdom come with power? Well, only three of them would find out. Until then, those three, Peter, James, and John, who he's about to call, and the rest of the disciples probably think that the kingdom means that these Roman occupiers are going to be moved out of the land and that their beloved Messiah will set up the kingdom and their beloved Israel. And that's their idea, perhaps, of what it means for the kingdom to come in power. Uh, what he really meant was that they would see a glimpse, a quick view of his true glory. And the truth here, I think, is that nothing so, characterized, so characterizes the kingdom as the king himself. Um, a glimpse of the king is a glimpse of the kingdom. Earlier, he had tangled with the Pharisees who had all of these objections, who opposed everything he said, everything he did. And they were claiming the miracles that he was, he was doing was by the power of Beelzebub. And he spoke to them saying, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you in my person. To see the king is to see the kingdom. So he said, yes, some of you standing here will see the kingdom of God come with power. And only later, all of them will understand it. And today we have the opportunity of understanding it. But at that time, what did it mean to all of them? But crickets, crickets. They didn't know. They didn't know. Now in verse 2 we read, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, why these three? They were the only ones. Earlier we read and Drew preached to us in chapter 5 that he took with him into the home of Jairus. Remember the ruler of the synagogue whose daughter was ill and then died? But when they came on the, on the, on, uh, to the location, she was already, had passed away. And because he is the author of life and the king of all that is good, 
he allowed Peter, James, and John to come into the room with him where he, he raised her from the dead. And it's, he's going to take these same three, Peter, James, and John, later into the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to take them off into that lonely, dark place where he fell down on his face before the Father. And he asked if the cup of suffering, the cup of suffering would pass from him. And he prayed, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus let these three men see more than others the power of his divinity and the intense prayerful struggle of his humanity. Now, what high mountain is this? Well, traditionally, it is Mount Tabor. But most biblical scholars think that it is more likely Mount Hermon because they were in Caesarea Philippi in the north part of Galilee, and Mount Hermon is in the far north part of Galilee, and it happens to be a very high mountain rising 9,000 feet above sea level. What was it like to go on a hike with Jesus up this, this high mountain? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. But as I think about it, I think from that high mountain they could probably see as they look to the west, looking down on the Mediterranean Sea in the distance. As they look to the south, they could probably see that Jordan Valley extending on to the south. And most likely, as they climb, just like any of us, on a warm spring day, I imagine they, they sweat. And from time to time, they had to stop and catch their breath. And it comes to mind out here in the beauty of nature, where are all those pressing crowds? Where are all the sick people pressing in to get healed? Where are the demon-possessed? Where are those evil, plotting Pharisees now? It's like in the beauty of nature, out of sight, out of mind. No, here's just a wild rose here and there on the way up the, up the mountain. You know, the scent of pine and the scent of occasionally maybe passing a bush a whiff of jasmine, soaring eagles in the sky, little darting lizards along the rocks. Uh, I, I have an author that I just love that, that, that treated this passage. And Brother Jerry introduced me to him. His name is Ken Geyer, and he wrote this series of books that are, I just highly recommend. But the one that has this passage, and I recommend that you get it and read it, it's very devotional is intense moments with the Savior. And in that, about this climb, Ken Geyer wrote, thousands of feet above sea level, they are cut off from the world below. No teeming crowds, no torrents of controversy, only clouds and sky and a soft stroke of wind brushing past their cheeks. I love how he comes to the inside of the story, devotionally meditating. So what is the true purpose of this adventure? I think it's too easy to conclude that Jesus just wanted him, them to see his glory, to get a glimpse of his 
of, his, of him and show them the kingdom. There's more here. And that's why we have the counsel of all of Scripture. Luke shows nothing conflicting whatsoever, but a different, a, an additional side of it. In Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, we read, He took with him Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain, here it is, to pray. The purpose revealed, his real purpose in going. And it says, as he was praying, <clears throat> the appearance of his face was altered. And he began to, his, his countenance was transfigured. And the true purpose here that Jesus had in going, and taking them with him, was like taking them to the garden, to be with him in prayer, to commune with his father, to have that close, close connection with his father. And note, again, our scriptural context. He had just foretold of his sufferings, the mocking and shame, being treated as a criminal, being tortured, being buried, and yes, resurrected. And just as in the garden ahead, <clears throat> this time of prayer may have and surely was filled with struggle, with personal struggle. He's asking for grace, for the strength to set his face like flint, to walk through the valley of suffering ahead, this valley of the shadow of death with the hounds of hell baring their teeth at his every step. He is, his divinity during this whole time was gloriously intact. But his humanity needed a ray of hope. That sound, the same sound, the Father's voice that he heard before he went off into the 40 days of testing in the wilderness, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And it was during this prayer on the mountain that Luke reveals the appearance of his face was altered. And Luke also reveals that when, when he went to pray, the disciples fall asleep. And he's revealed to them at the end of this time of transfiguration. Their eyes are opened and they waken and they see him in his glory and they see Moses and Elijah with him. We're just getting to that. Verse 3. And he was transfigured before them, we read. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Suddenly, heaven opens. Jesus changes. His face, imagine, shining like 10,000 suns in the splendor of the glory of the Father. This is an interesting word, transfigured. And the Greek here is metamorphosis. Does it help you understand what that word means, transfigured, metamorphosis? But understand this. The metamorphosis or the, the transfiguration was of his appearance. His essence remained the same. He had been, his <clears throat> glory had been veiled from his birth until this time by the humanity that he came in and that he inhabited in the, all its fullness. <clears throat> but it was veiled. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We read it in Hebrews. It is so. It never, he has never changed. He always was. He always is. And he always will be. He was and is and is to come. Now, even his clothing here shined with a purely heavenly whiteness and radiance that no, no laundry on earth could possibly accomplish. And the question arises, is this real or is, or is this just a vision? And I believe that this was no dream. I believe that what they're seeing here is more real than anything they have experienced until this moment in their lives. I believe that. In the light of his glory, just as we sing, earthly things will fade. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things on earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I think the rocks are less gray. I think the grass is less green. And I think that the earth is less brown. Uh, his glory is, is, is real. It's true in, in, in its fullness. But something special he allowed them to see. And something else, by the way, has faded. All of those testy spats between them about who is greatest in the kingdom, right? That's also gone by the wayside, right? Now we uh, have a little picture here that we don't have to worry about who's greatest in the kingdom, right? Now, verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, why Elijah and Moses? There is something brothers and sisters, so divine in their appearance and something so human in their coming here to be with Jesus. Let's start first with the human. Ken Geyer wrote this in his devotion, by the way. Here are two servant friends who knew the wilderness and had endured the lonely deprivations and destitutions and the severity of the wilderness. Think of Moses, 40 years, and Elijah too. They knew the wilderness. They both knew suffering because of God's high calling on their lives. And they both experienced rejection from those they were called to lead. And now, the divine, the divine. Here are two servant friends, each of whom had a high calling from God. Moses was the one through whom God gave the law epitomized in the Ten Commandments to all of humankind. To this day, thank the good Lord in heaven, it is still the foundation of all Western civilization. We say there are cracks in our foundations. Well, you know something? There will never be a crack in this foundation. Never. The only question is, are we still on that foundation? 
and then we're not so on that foundation as we once were. But there are cracks in our foundations, <clears throat> but never a crack in this one. It's there forever. Now, not only is it the foundation of Western civilization, it happens to be, according to scripture, that tutor, that teacher that leads us to Christ. Romans 3.19, I need to quote here. Now we know, Paul wrote, that whatever the law says it, says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We also have here Elijah, as Moses brought the law. Elijah was the one through whom God ordained the ministry of the prophets, each one of whom, and on every page of their writings, spoke of the Messiah who would come. To this day, the hundreds of prophecies of every aspect of Jesus' birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection are written many centuries before their fulfillment. And because of this, the prophecies underscore the veracity of the written word as well as the living word. Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, who was, is, and is to come. Now Moses, by the law, led each of us to know our need, that we are lost in sin. Elijah and the prophets testified of the one who would fill that need. I don't think anybody led more people to Christ than Moses and Elijah. And I think that's why they're standing here with Jesus Christ. Moses through the law, showing our need. And Elijah, head of the prophets, who showed the, the, all of the aspects of who Jesus would be when he came. Remember how after Jesus' resurrection, that he would open the hearts of two disciples on the road to Emmaus? And he said to them in Luke 24, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now listen, he who presented himself as the fulfillment, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is standing between the greatest lawgiver and the greatest prophet. And just what were they discussing? Again, Luke reveals to us, behold, he writes in Luke 30, 31, 9, Luke chapter 9, 30 and 31, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, interestingly, the Greek word under departure that Luke uses in the Greek is exodus, just like that. The Greek word is exodus. Listen, <clears throat> the Jewish people think back to the time of the exodus and their trek through the wilderness to the promised land. No exodus, no promised land. Hard as it was to follow Moses out, right? No exodus, 
no promised land. In this case, no cross, no crown. As Drew taught us last week, by the way, from that passage in chapter 8. Jesus, through his death on a cross, would accomplish his exodus from the land of slavery and sin. And having gone through the harsh wilderness of this world, he would enter a promised land where he will sit as king of kings and rule at the right hand of his father forever and ever. The cross must come, though, before the crown. Just as he had prayed, just as he had prayed, struggled in prayer, so went his discussion here on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. The heart and core of the Transfiguration is the cross. The heart and core of Jesus' glory here is the cross. The context remains. Verses 5 through 8, moving us toward quickly, more quickly toward the conclusion. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Leslie just shared earlier. You think? Good that we're here, right? Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. Voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now we had heard that under the law, every mouth would be stopped. I just read that to you. But that was kind of difficult for one of the disciples. Thankfully, we read here that he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. This is my beloved son. Again, these are the same words that comforted, comforted Jesus before he went into the wilderness. When the father says, listen to him, he's not just speaking, of course. To these three disciples, he's speaking to each one of us, speaking to me, speaking to you. Listen to him. Now, truly, friends, if we really hear him, if we were to see the Father or our Lord Jesus in all his glory, would not our reaction be the same as theirs? I know that mine would, truly. Uh, why? Because they knew. They were sinners, just like each one of us. They knew their need. They knew their need. And I think that each one of us in that circumstance would fall on our face. And I think there would be some, no small amount of terror because I, in my humanity, I'm so thankful that your family, you could forgive my foibles and faults. It's so th I'm so thankful we can have family and understand one another. But the truth of the matter is, is that there isn't one of us that if we were to meet God and see his glory, uh, that we wouldn't uh, have, a, have a, a point of terror. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that we need to consider carefully 
if we are ready to meet with the Holy God in our present condition. Um, none of us knows the number of our days. They're a gift. They are numbered. Mine are numbered and yours are numbered. None of us knows that number. When you open your heart, when you open your heart and you trust Jesus alone, he enters your heart, he enters your soul, and you are accepted as in Christ. That means in the beloved. You're accepted before the Father when you're in Christ. Um, if you are in the one of whom the Father says, this is my beloved Son, what do you have to fear? There is no greater acceptance. There is no greater forgiveness. There is no greater cleansing than to be in the beloved of the Father. And that's why I'm calling you today to open your heart. If you share the thoughts of humanity and if you knew my sinfulness, I wouldn't want you to know it all. You know, but there isn't one of us who doesn't have so much to confess. Um, if you have him, if you are in him, you are in full acceptance by the Father. And all who go in, go in through that very narrow gate whose name is Jesus and who is Jesus. And this is the gospel of the kingdom. Actually, there is no other way. And so suddenly, the scriptures say, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. Now, in Matthew 17, 6, there's another little uh, addition to our story that I'll read to you. <clears throat> Matthew 17, 6 tells us, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and yes, they were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And this is a wonderful moment because when they raised their eyes, heard him say, Have no fear, who did they see? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. His perfect love for you led him to the cross, the subject of his discussion with Moses and Elijah. His perfect love for you led him to the cross of Calvary so you can have no fear because there he bore all your sins all your faults, all your failures, and made it possible for you to have this place in the beloved. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. They and we are loved by the beloved Son. So rise up, rise up, and have no fear. Have no fear. Now, the conclusion, the last verses we'll read together. A couple more things to say to you before we conclude. Verses 9 through 13, we'll read together. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning 
what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, this is the conclusion of our text this morning. And I think there's just a couple things in it that I want to note to you. First, Peter, James, and John were to keep the transfiguration that they had seen of Jesus, the glimpse of the true nature of their king, as a secret until after the resurrection. The scripture tells us that they did that very thing. They kept it a secret. And the truth of the matter is here that they just did not understand fully what they had witnessed. They just didn't nor what it meant for Jesus to rise from the dead. The scripture tells us that they were thinking it over and couldn't understand it. Therefore, they weren't ready to share it, and the others were not ready to receive it. And I'm afraid there are many such things, aren't there, that you and I are still not ready to grasp. And I want to say how patient and how gentle the Lord is. He knows that. He knows that. Secondly, they had just seen Elijah with Jesus, and they were wondering about the well-known words of Malachi, the words, the last words that came before 400 years of silence. And they were these. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It's in Malachi 4, 5. Answer in answer, Jesus returns to the same theme of, of suffering. The context of the transfiguration is the theme of the cross. He prepares them to know God's purpose and his being mocked and tortured and murdered. And so when he tells them Elijah must come and they did to him whatever they pleased, they understood he was speaking of John the Baptist. And it was given to John, you see, to fill, fulfill this public role of Elijah, the public role of, of Elijah. And it was given just to these three disciples to see Elijah come in a very private way, in a very private way. But after Jesus' resurrection, all, including you and me here this morning, could know of it, Jesus gave them a glimpse of his glory for Peter, James, and John it's the light at the end of Jesus' tunnel, the tunnel of the cross that they too will carry. They'll carry their own cross in following him. For Jesus, a discussion with Moses and Elijah about that same cross was a loving and a loving word of encouragement from his heavenly Father. I hope this morning that your inner eyes have felt and seen the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory and that in his glory he made a commitment to go to the cross just for you to die for your sins so that you can be with him where he is Jesus loves you
He has given all that he has. He laid it down for the joy that awaits, the joy of being with you, with him forever. So I hope your inner eyes have seen this. And I hope that you remember the Father's words. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Thank you for walking up this mountain with me and with Peter, James, and John this morning. Um, isn't it time to turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face? Truly the things on earth, the things that you maybe have wanted and that you, you care for, that even you could get in your unredeemed nature. Yeah, let them grow dim in the light of his glory and grace. Only in Christ, only in the Father's beloved Son, can you stand with full assurance before God the Father. If you've never done that, you can do that today. We are going to call in just a few minutes and allow you, if you wish, to open your heart. Allow the Lord of glory to come in, the one who laid his life down for you, who loves you with everything he had. He gave it for you. So let us, let us turn to him now in prayer as we close. Our dear Lord and our Heavenly Father, thank you for taking us up that mountain with you this morning. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of your prayer life. Thank you for showing us the utter beauty of your human humanity, your loving determination to go to the cross for me and for all of us, for each of us, to see the glory and majesty of your divinity which you had before the foundation of this world and which you have today at the right hand of God our Father. We're thankful that you've told us that you're coming again. We're waiting for you, Lord. Give us the grace, meanwhile, to be your disciples, Lord, denying all that we could gain through our old sin nature, but yet embracing the truth of our new nature in you, dear Jesus. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who has not seen you before, but sees you today, Move them to open their heart to your love and receive you as their own personal Lord and Savior. Amen.